0: HPPodcraft.com You needn't think I'm crazy, Elliot. Plenty of others have queer prejudices than this. Why don't you laugh at Oliver's grandfather, who won't ride in a motor? If I don't like that damn subway, it's my own business. And we got here more quickly anyhow in the taxi. We'd have had to walk up the hill from Park Street if we'd taken the car. I know I'm more nervous than I was when you saw me last year. But you don't need to hold a clinic over it. There's plenty of reason, God knows, and I fancy I'm lucky to be sane at all. Why the third degree? You didn't used to be so inquisitive. Well, if you must hear it, I don't know why you shouldn't. Maybe you ought to, anyhow, for he kept writing me like a grieved parent when he heard I'd begun to cut the art club and keep away from Pickman. Now that he's disappeared, I got around to the club once in a while, but my nerves aren't what they were.
1: Those are the opening paragraphs from uh, H.P. Lovecraft's short story Pickman's Model, one of his most famous and maybe the most famous creepy artist story. I say that because we've got another creepy artist on the show today, Josh Bentley. Uh, uh, Thanks. I have my
2: pants down in my ankles right now. That's how creepy I am. Excellent.
1: And you're outside, right?
2: Yes, I am. I'm, I'm in beautiful downtown East Moline next to lots of uh, Urban Decay down here, so I could get kind of in the spirit of this. I'd come down here and look at some of the esoteric gang graffiti. Um, there's, some, uh, there's some beds down here. If anybody wants to lay down on one of these beds... (laughs) Which I would suspect that one of these beds has probably been used for some sort of loathsome ghoul
1: sex of some sort. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yes. That's a perfect setting for discussing the story.
3: Well, and we're discussing the story on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
1: That's right, here at HPPodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer.
3: And I'm Chris Lackey.
1: Uh, And Josh here used to play in a band with me. We played in a band together for many years. And uh, Chris used to run Call of Cthulhu for all of us when we were in high school. (laughs) And we invited Josh on today because, Josh, you made a um, short film recently called Pickman's Song, right?
2: Yes, Pickman's Song. Cool, oh, and right. you pl-
1: that played at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival a couple of years ago?
2: We were in the 13th annual. We were uh, picked as one of the official shorts,
1: so cool. that
2: was a, a distinct honor.
1: Those opening passages were read by the director, Chris Weitz. He was gracious enough to take some time away from his current film and record for us.
3: Yeah, Chris Weitz uh, most recently directed the Twilight sequel, New Moon, and he's also directed... Uh, well, he's
1: maybe better known for directing American Pie and About a Boy with his brother, Paul. And he also helmed the Golden Compass. Um, right. American Pie, name.
2: very Lovecraftian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well at least Eugene Levy's eyebrows are very Lovecraftian. Uh, I'd also mention that our lovely music today has been provided by Troy Sterling Niece, who is the composer on the upcoming Whisper in Darkness, and he also did most of the sections of music in The Call of Cthulhu. Yep. There are a lot of introductions in these opening passages of characters in the story. You've got uh, Elliot, who is the person the protagonist is talking to. And it's kind of a unique way that Lovecraft writes the story. It's all in monologue, but there are implied responses by this guy, Elliot.
3: Yeah, which is the first time Uh, that Lovecraft's ever ever done anything like this.
1: You know, we have the statement of Randolph Carter where he's talking to some interrogators or something, but the interesting thing about this is that he implies that Elliot's saying things to him during the story.
2: Elliot's kind of overprotective of Thurber here, I guess. He kind of coddles him a little bit, and he doesn't really like
1: it. And then there's there's monologue for Pickman himself later in the story. And both are, they're kind of casual and conversational ways that he's writing, which is very strange for him because mostly he's very stilted. So it's interesting that it's more colloquial in, in this instance.
3: Absolutely. I agree.
1: Well, now, Elliot can only, of course, be one of two people. It's either Elliot or that kid from E.T., right?
3: No. Elliot is, uh, it's a last name. It's a surname. It's not. Oh, OK. It's not somebody's first name. And Elliot, uh, there was a, a very wealthy and respected socialite of, of Boston who was named Elliot. Charles William Elliot. hmm and, and he was just you know kind of a, a rich a bigwig in the Elliot family it's kind of a big deal in Boston so that's probably oh, okay. where he got the name from yeah
1: and we know that our protagonist is named Thurber
3: we don't know that until about about halfway through the story when yeah. uh, telling Elliot what Pigman said so Pigman addresses. Yeah. The narrator, and we find out that
1: it's their It's great that he mentions Pickman in those opening couple of paragraphs, but you know, he just says uh, that he kept away from Pickman, and you don't know why yet. You don't know who this guy is,
2: um, and that
3: Pickman's he, gone. Some something's happening. And then Pickman's and we, missing. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, I read it
2: again today, and I realized that that was one of the mechanisms that kind of pulls you in. Exactly.
1: The narrator goes on to say that that the full name is Richard Upton Pickman, and he's an artist of some kind of ghastly reputation in Boston, who, as you say, has recently gone missing. Thurber says he hasn't helped the police much to find him even though he knows Pickman had a secret studio. In Boston's North End, that he kept under a phony name. But he says, you know, I wouldn't even be able to find that studio again, even in broad daylight, so I don't know what I would have told the police. All we know about that studio is that somehow it's introduced to the narrator this new phobia of subways and cellars.
3: Yeah, a phobia. This is like one of the first times that we're getting a protagonist that has has gained a phobia from something that he's witnessed.
1: Well, uh, Thurber says he didn't start avoiding Pikmin because his art freaked him out the way it freaked out other people in Boston society. I mean, they won't show his work. It's a big scandal, all of the things that he paints. And he comments, Um, on
0: Pikmin's unique talent. He says, You know, it takes profound art and profound insight into nature to turn out stuff like Pikmin's. Any magazine cover hack can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare or a witch's sabbath or a portrait of the devil, but only a great painter can make such a thing really scare or ring true. Well,
3: his work is called Ghoul Feeding. You know, basically... There's something that are in these paintings, it's, you know, it's of a ghoul feeding. It's a, you know, a monster eating something, probably a person, but there's something about it that makes it feel that it's real. You know, that this is a real thing and it's, it really happened.
1: He says that only a certain kind of artist can really hit on the actual anatomy of the terrible or the physiology of fear. And he throws right. out some names of other artists who are real
3: artists. Doré is, uh, uh-huh. was a French illustrator and painter, and he did a lot of weird fiction stuff.
1: Yeah, uh, Doré's actually been used by
2: quite a few different people. I think uh, Skeet Puppy used that on a few albums. I think on the cover of some kind of single for uh, Simulate. Hmm. His, his work is, when it comes to
1: realism, it's it's... Pretty exquisite stuff. Yeah, he had done a... I think we actually... He was referenced in another story we covered, and I remember saying that he had done full sets of images for the Divine Comedy and the the Bible and Don Quixote.
3: And, uh, well, Sim was another weird fiction artist, and he did a lot of stuff with uh, Lord Dunsany.
1: Right. Is it Sim? I thought it was Sim.
3: It might be Syme. I'm not sure how it's pronounced.
1: The most uh, famous painter that he mentions is Goya yeah. as well. Most people are familiar with Goya. He, he writes, some of his paintings are really striking and kind of frightening. In fact, there's one. Oh, what's
3: it Saturn called? Saturn Devouring His Children.
1: Yes. This one that's called The Witch's Sabbath, one of the black goats sitting...
2: In the middle, and all of the people kind of around him in a circle. Yeah, that actually, you know, at the beginning they said any magazine cover hat can splash around wildly and call it a nightmare or a witch's Sabbath. He's kind of making light of people's work like that. But Goya, actually, I think one of the one of his more uh, recognizable works.
1: I think that Goya's uh, <laughs> to say that uh, Pickman's work is more effective than Goya is saying quite a lot because yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Well, um, after name-checking all of these painters, uh, Thurber goes on to describe Pickman's art a little more. And also we get from the writing that he's also starting to drink fairly heavily. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
3: that's really interesting, I thought. That's a a character in a Lovecraft story that's actually drinking. What's
1: the year that
2: this was made, very obviously, during
1: Prohibition then?
3: This is 26. Uh,
1: Yeah. Well, I think that if you've been through what this guy's been through, if you need to talk through it again, you're going to need a few cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and as he has one, he says, you know, Pickman's forte was painting faces, which in my head, I was I imagine that Elliot cuts in and says, what, he really paints faces like at the carnival? Could he make <laughs> me into a tiger? <laughs> no, no, not that kind uh, of face painting. He's just so good at creating these realistic expressions. And, and uh, even Elliot, we know at one point asked. Pikmin where he got his ideas because it's so disturbing and so realistic and we also get in those next couple of paragraphs that people are not just freaked out by the art that Pikmin's coming out with but they're also getting a little freaked out by Pikmin it's as if he's changing physically in some ways
3: yeah there's something about his, his features that are that he seems different in some way some sort of abnormal or, or just eccentric people think maybe it's, he's been eating s- different things you know yeah something in know, his know. diet yeah yeah is, exactly yeah
2: well, we know what's up down in that store <laughs> Uh, I think the last line is pretty good in that uh, paragraph, Dad, yeah, I wouldn't be alive if I'd uh, ever seen what that man, if he was a man, saw.
1: Right. Right, yeah.
2: We get that first lovely taste that right. obviously, there's something
1: screwed up with, Pigman. Right. Yeah, and, and after that he says, you know, hey, I, I'm not easily freaked out. I loved that painting, Ghoul Feeding, even though nobody would show it or buy it or anything like that. And he actually, because nobody sh- took it to show it or to buy it, it it now that painting is now with pickman's father and when he mentions that he says pickman is descended from some of the witches who were hanged in 1692 yeah so thurber starts to hang out with pickman all the time because he's so interested in his art and he says he's also working on a monograph of, on weird art his own right. kind of like scholarly thesis Pickman's art as it's described in here really mirrors kind of Lovecraft's approach to writing fiction so it makes sense that they would kind of almost be in the same genre because you know he describes Pickman's art as being realistic and something's off about it that's disturbing because of the realism, and, and Lovecraft was a strict realist. He thought that the best way to write horror was to have a very realistic setting in which something awful or terrible happens, but to treat everything with a, a large degree of verisimilitude. Somebody sent us a um, a clip from Mastermind, that British show. Oh right, yeah. Did you did you watch that, Chris?
3: Yeah, oh, well, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it a few times before they said that. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. So
1: the girl was the Lovecraft expert, but when the hosts asked her to describe his kind of writing, she said he wanted to write horror stories that would scare an atheist, which I thought was such a great expression of what yeah. he is trying to do. Thurber, you know, he quickly turns into, as he describes his relationship with Pikmin, that standard Lovecraftian protagonist, like in Reanimator or The Hound. He sort of worships at the feet of this total creep and is compelled right. to see the depths of his depravity, you know. <laughs> but Pickman's into it, you know. He likes having somebody around to talk to, I think. Yeah, of course. So somebody he can rant at. And uh, at this point in the story, Pickman actually kind of begins to take over the narrative a bit, talking about how he thinks an artist has to really live in, a, in the North End if they want to really experience life.
2: Back Bay, Boston isn't anything yet because it's not had the time to pick up memories and attract local exactly. spirits, is that what yes.
1: touch? He talks about how the, the part of the city like grew up generation after generation. It wasn't designed. He says,
0: I can show you houses that have stood two centuries and a half or more, houses that have witnessed what would make a modern house crumble into powder. What do moderns know of life and the forces behind it? You call the Salem witchcraft a delusion. But I'll wage my four times great-grandmother could have told you things. They hanged her on Gallows Hill, with Cotton Mather looking sanctimoniously on. Mather, damn him, was afraid somebody might succeed in kicking free of this accursed cage of monotony. I wish someone had laid a spell on him or sucked his blood in the night.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think that 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 whole passage just has so much... Wrapped up into it and kind of really lets you in, look in not only his story but you know, on Lovecraft himself and what he was thinking. Oh sure you know yeah.
1: Lovecraft hates monotony you know he hates it he hates like the little things that you have to do every day in, in life he hates doing the dishes he hates sweeping the floor it's almost like he thinks you know our ancestors were always being chased
3: by monsters
1: like that's what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> 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 Bring it on well, the
3: monsters,
1: man. I'm sick of doing this shit. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> on a side on a side note, this is a, a common misconception about, about Cotton Mather is he actually wasn't directly involved with the witch trials. After the fact he wrote about it and said that, you know, that these things happened, that these girls were you know, there were witches and there were witchcraft that was affecting them but right. he wrote a letter while the trials were going on to the judges where he was trying to, he was advising them against using spectral evidence which is you know Ready? what those girls are saying i can see that she's a witch and she's torturing me and all that stuff something that can yeah. um, could never be proven and he re- also recommended the release of confessed criminals, like he thought that they should just should be you know they shouldn't go to jail or anything like that. Uh-huh. and after the fact, he wrote about it because those people were dead, and there was much and he wanted to you know keep the church going. but at the time right. he wasn't really that in comparison, he's not that bad of a guy, yeah, and you know I did want to say that I did use uh, spectral
2: evidence to get out of a traffic ticket once) <laughs> How did that work? <laughs> no, it, you know, it's quite easy. The, the, the police officer had brought a demon with the court. And it, I, I
1: don't want to get into all this. It's kind of wrapped up in civil li- litigation right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm not an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> so, the North End. I, I don't know Boston too well. But I know that at the time that this was written, the North End was kind of considered a slum, right? I, I think now it's Little Italy in Boston, but it, that, this is where all of the immigrants were mostly
3: living. Well, Lovecraft actually did spend a lot of time in that in that area of Boston, uh, just in just tra- his visits and travels. And when he writes about it, it's pretty accurate stuff. It is kind of strange, though. Uh, a couple of years after he wrote this story, he went back to Boston, and the whole area had been demolished. It was being... Uh, new buildings and things were being built over there. So uh, even in Lovecraft's time... It's, it changed. It wasn't like that anymore. They made it more grid-like because it was, you know, the organic nature of how a town grows. They were trying yeah. to modernize it in 1930.
1: Well, that's sort of what Pickman is complaining about at this portion of the story. He goes on to say that the north end, you know, it used to, there used to be a set of tunnels that connected all the houses and the graveyard and the sea together. And that workmen, as they're rebuilding it constantly and knocking things down, they keep uncovering secrets down there all sorts of uh, folks who practice crazy rites in their basements and their cellars. Yeah. <laughs> Pickman says, you know, those are the days. <laughs>
2: yeah, we could drink blood in the basement without reproach
1: <laughs>
3: Well, these people are obviously able to, to scoot around and not be seen, and that was th- these right. tunnels that connected them. They could do whatever kind of nefarious things they wanted to get involved with. I would exactly. think typically bootlegging would be a, a big deal at this time, but it doesn't even come yeah. up in Lovecraft's story at all.
1: Pickman says, these days people are so easily shocked by a painting, but back then, you know, they really had more of an appreciation for the the dark things in life. And He
0: gets a little into his own art aesthetic, he says. Yes, Thurber, I decided long ago that one must paint terror as well as beauty from life, so I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives. I've got a place that I don't believe three living Nordic men besides myself have ever seen. It isn't so very far from the elevated as distance goes, but it's centuries away as the soul goes. So he's got a little uh,
1: secret studio. Yes. And that's where the magic happened. It's this little shack in the rundown north end. He's got it under a fake name and he says he paints in the basement there. He, he wants to take Thurber and Thurber's really excited oh, yeah, he know, did. to he's, see the studio. Yeah, he's spazzing I mean, out. It, it's almost like if George Clooney invited me out to his villa, you know? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. No. Yeah. You don't, you don't daydream about that. No. Well, Pikmin and Thurber get together. They grab a cab. They get the elevated, and around midnight, they embark down the waterfront. Past Constitution Wharf, uh, and Pickman leads him down what he calls the oldest and dirtiest alley he'd ever seen, <laughs> and it's it's lined by these old old houses. They make some other strange turns, and then Pickman gets out a flashlight. It's so dark, and he takes him through a worm-eaten door into this tenement building. I love that throughout the story, Thurber is always reasserting how tough he is. You know, here he says, "I'm what the man in the street would call hard-boiled." <laughs> <laughs> who uses that term anymore
3: (laughs) lovecraft does that's yeah i
2: feel feel pretty hard-boiled when i go down to walmart i mean (laughs) that's a crazy crowd down there about 4 a.m but uh yeah that's (laughs) actually setting all silliness aside that was another part that pulled me in on this story you know my mind just was able to kind of wander the the maze and the labyrinth of all these crooked alleys. And, you know, I don't know if this is what Lovecraft was trying to get at with this, but it really felt like to me that he was talking about the, the maze and the labyrinth of the human mind. They were going to the epicenter of that, you know, which, or the center there, of the darkness, which is is Pickman's studio in
1: the end. Thurber and Pickman go into the studio and and Thurber gets a bad turn right away from looking at the pictures that that Pickman's just got right in the opening of of the place there. He says the settings are all churchyards and the woods and tunnels, and he talks about the primary features of these paintings.
0: The madness and monstrosity lay in the figures in the foreground, for Pickman's morbid art was preeminently one of demonic portraiture. These figures were seldom completely human, but often approached humanity in varying degree. Most of the bodies, while roughly bipedal, had a forward slumping and a vaguely canine cast. The texture of the majority was a kind of unpleasant rubberiness. Ugh, I can see them now. Their occupations, well, don't ask me to be too precise. They were usually feeding. I won't say on what. They were sometimes shown in groups, in cemeteries or underground passages, and often appeared to be in battle over their prey, or rather their treasure trove. Occasionally the things were shown leaping through open windows at night, or squatting on the chests of sleepers, worrying at their throats. One canvas showed a ring of them baying about a hanged witch on Gallows Hill whose dead face held a close kinship to theirs.
1: Ooh, creepy. Yikes. Yeah, that is some very cool stuff.
3: Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that really sells the story. I mean, in fact, I would argue that this part is almost the highlight of the story. You know, this, this section mm, uh-huh. here, because it's mm-hmm. the most interesting and the most provocative. And um, without ruining too much, I feel like the end kind of lets it down a little bit. Huh. Okay. Yeah, well, we'll I, we get there.
1: Okay. I do want to say that normally I don't do this but when I put together the reading of that paragraph I did take a sentence out and it's because it's such a great striking paragraph and it brings so much mood and creepiness I didn't want to leave this in here because I thought it would throw it off the sentences and what damnable expressiveness Pickman sometimes gave the sightless faces of this charnel booty <laughs> Now, I know what he means, you know, the treasures of the dead, but it made me. Total
2: booty, <laughs> I know.
1: It made me laugh. So if I ever open a dance club, that's what it's totally going to be called. Total booty. Total booty.
2: Charnel stop. booty stop.
1: <laughs> As Thurber goes on to describe the horrific faces in the paintings in the story, he starts hitting the decanter a little harder. He's still drinking, and uh, he talks about this one painting called "The Lesson."
3: There are these these creatures with a a, a small human child, and they're basically teaching him how to eat. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's going on in that yeah. particular one? Yeah, there
1: is. It's... They're teaching a human baby to feed like them.
3: Yeah, because supposedly, Pikmin said that they would steal human babies and then replace them with their babies, and then they right. that's how they kind of replenished their population.
1: Yeah, because he kind of makes the connection when he's looking at the, the lesson with the human baby in there that, oh, well, these creatures are really just devolved humans. Right. Uh, it's sort of like in the, the creatures in The Lurking Fear. And it's confirmed by another painting with a family in a Puritan interior, One of them is a ghoul, but the others aren't, you know? It's like, one of these things is not like the other kind of of thing. (laughs) Right, right. And he sees that's how the changeling thing works. They get the human baby, and then they leave a little ghoul baby for some other family to raise. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in the studio, we're actually moving on, and he takes him from that, those mostly historical paintings.
3: Yeah, yeah. But but Pigman asks him, do you want to see my modern studies?
0: God, how that man could paint. There was a study called Subway Accident in which a flock of the vile things were clambering up from some unknown catacomb through a crack in the floor of the Boylston Street subway and attacking a crowd of people on the platform. Another showed a dance on Copse Hill among the tombs with the background of today. Then there were any number of cellar views with monsters creeping in through holes and rifts in the masonry and grinning as they squatted behind barrels or furnaces and waited for their first victim to descend the stairs.
3: When he sees these pictures, he screams. Like, he audibly I, screams, and he says, you know, I'm, again, he's defending himself by saying, I'm no M- mollycoddle, you know, I, <laughs> right. I was in the First World War in France, you know, like, I was, I've seen the, I've seen the shit, the, you know, I'm, I've been oh, in Oh,
1: right, because he says, you saw me in France. Right, So yeah. I guess that implies that he's a World War I veteran. Yeah,
3: exactly. So he said, but I saw these, these, these modern pictures, and I screamed out loud.
1: And the paintings he describes here are, are, are chilling. There's, there's one where a group of the, the ghouls are laughing at a Boston guidebook, and the title is Holmes, Lowell, and Longfellow Lie Buried in Mount Auburn. And I presume they're laughing because those guys actually are buried in their little ghoul bellies, right?
3: Yeah, well, they've, they've eaten the guys.
1: The idea of a painting of a bunch of monsters around a book laughing hysterically is almost creepier than anything else in here, man. I don't know why. You're right. That's
2: probably one of the creepier ones in here. Yeah. You kind of wonder what this dude was doing in France in World War One. I. I mean... But was he was he just a cook and he wasn't seeing any action because he, he's trying to portray himself as hardcore here but he's screaming at some pains
1: right right <laughs> <laughs> it's true though I agree I actually think that, that Thurber is a little wimpier and that's the reason that he's so boastful you know oh, he, well, he, see, he you now, I just keep take, reminding you
3: I take it the, the other direction I, that Thurber is actually really a badass and these uh-huh. things are so terrifying on such a primal level yes that it supersedes okay. any of those things that, and I know, obviously you guys are joking, but No, but, no, you're right though. I mean part you know. of the
1: reason that he does that <laughs> part of the reason he does that is because it gives the well, if this guy's such a tough guy, these paintings must really be awful yeah, to make a screen. Thurber talks about Pikmin is being a realistic painter. He doesn't use tricks. He doesn't do impressionistic things. And yeah. that's the worst part. You know, that they're so realistic. They're He's so a thorough, real. painstaking, and almost scientific realist. Well, they, they go down to the actual studio where he does his work, and Thurber notices that there's a giant well in the cellar, but it's not bricked up. It's just got a circle of wood over it. Mm-hmm. Strange. First idea right there that something wrong was going to happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well in the dark. You
2: know what's going
1: down. (laughs) Right. They pass the the well for the time being and move into Pickman's studio, where he does all of his actual painting. He's got a light in there. And there's something else in the
0: studio. A large camera on a table excited my notice. And Pickman told me that he used it in taking scenes for background so that he might paint them from photographs in the studio instead of carting his outfit around the town for this or that view. He thought a photograph quite as good as an actual scene or model for sustained work and declared he employed them regularly.
3: <laughs> Which is a, hmm. a common technique for for many artists, you know, yeah. even modern artists yep. do such yep. a thing.
1: Seems pretty reasonable. It's very reasonable. I mean, that, right. Puts it in the realm of reasonability. Sure. But, I mean, let's not pretend that we don't see it
3: coming. Yeah, no,
2: it's, <laughs> I know. see it coming a mile away. <laughs> I mean,
1: once they introduce the camera, you go, oh In, 20, in
2: 1926, I don't know if you would have seen that punch telegraphed like that, but maybe, you know, what <laughs> right. you take pictures of? Like, you know, but once you, by the time you read you've gotten that far into the story. I mean, most people, even though have never read Lovecraft before, I think would be pulled in enough that that wouldn't... Oh, yeah. Push them off.
1: Absolutely. You know, to yeah, Lovecraft's not M. Night Shyamalan. He's not trying to hit you <laughs> with the plot twist. He's not about plot. He's about setting and mood right. and um, yes. trying to create a certain feeling in the reader. And so, you know, he telegraphs his endings a lot. And I don't think it's because he was a bad writer or didn't know that people no. were going to see it coming. I think it's just that's not what was interesting to him.
3: And, I, of course, I agree with you.
1: Well, Pickman, he pulls aside a sheet to unveil what he's working
0: on now, a canvas. And Thurber, again, Screams Because it's so frightening. (laughs) It was a colossal and nameless blasphemy with glaring red eyes, and it held in bony claws a thing that had been a man, gnawing at the head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. Its position was a kind of crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. But damn it all, it wasn't even the fiendish subject that made it such an immortal fountainhead of all panic. Not that. Nor the dog face with its pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, flat nose and drooling lips. It wasn't the scaly claws. Nor the mold-caked body, nor the half-hooved feet. None of these. Though any one of them might well have driven an excitable man to madness. It was the technique, Elliot. The curse at the impious, the unnatural, technique. As I am a living being, I never elsewhere saw the actual breath of life so fused into a canvas. The monster was there. It glared and gnawed and gnawed and glared, and I knew that only a suspension of nature's laws could ever let a man paint a thing like that without a model, without some glimpse of the netherworld where no mortal unsold to the fiend has ever had.
2: Yeah, oh, man. when I read that about the screaming, really reminded me of a uh, uh, of a Nietzsche quote. And if you gaze for long into the abyss, the abyss gazes back into you. Uh-huh. It kind of reminded me then of Pickman sitting down there, like getting all like freaked out because he starts hearing these sounds and he's kind of brought that on you had to scream into the darkness didn't
1: you man and yeah now the darkness is coming uh, out (laughs) that's exactly right when he screams it kind of echoes around the cellar and pikmin looks very nervous about that happening yeah um meanwhile thurber sees a piece of paper thumbtacked to the canvas and uh is just reaching out to to sort of uncurl it and see what's on it right and
3: as he does pikmin just Starts up like he hears something and he pulls out a gun <laughs> yeah he pulls out a
1: revolver <laughs> yeah what does a painter need that for
3: pretty strange that uh, that, mm-hmm. that you pull out a gun and then yeah. he he goes off he goes you know I, i'm sorry i gotta i got there's something i gotta go take care of hang tight yeah. here for a minute and then he goes <laughs> right. he goes off
0: <laughs> and he closes
3: the door he yeah. closes the door and then you hear all he hears all this, these gibbering sounds and these scratchings and these noises and yeah he hears, here's six gunshots his gun is going off in the X
0: room in that sentence i like he says uh imitating pikmin's listening i fancied i heard a faint scurrying sound somewhere and a series of squeals or bleats in a direction i couldn't determine i thought of huge rats and shuddered i love that he says bleats and squeals something about that's
1: so
3: creepy yeah they're really um Mm -hmm. they're different i mean the. Different words to describe these sounds, you know, like they're not common, so it really gives it sort of an alien effect. Ew. On top
1: of all the bleeding and gibbering, he also heard some clatter like wood on stone uh-huh. before those shots got fired. So it seems like maybe those rats were coming out of the well in there, maybe. Uh
3: huh, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: it's also funny when he mentions him shooting the weapon, he says he shot it in, in the air, maybe like a lion tamer.
3: Right, but he says he's also fired all six shots, which is very, yeah, it reminds me of, of um, uh, Herbert West. Remember, exactly. there's the part where, you know, where, where Her- 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 Herbert shoots that the guy, you know, six mm-hmm. times. When one bullet would have sufficed, you know, he right. you know, fired the six. Six and shots so, by midnight, I think. Think was yeah, the name uh-huh. of the chapter yeah i thought that was interesting that lovecraft uh, brings that back again but anyway mm-hmm. so pickman comes back in and he's got a smoking gun and he goes boy i wonder yeah. what them rats have been eaten <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of the end of the night for them. <laughs> they get out of the tangle of the alleys and they walk all the way downtown and, and Pikmin right. drops him off at an intersection and they never speak again.
3: They and never see each other again. Yeah, that's it.
1: Yeah, and it kind of reminded me of like when you strike up a quick friendship with somebody maybe so a lot of times it's out when you're drinking or something. Yeah. yeah. I love this guy and you make friends and you're having a really good time and then like you go to their house and you see something screwed up <laughs> <laughs> and then that's it. You know, you never talk again. <laughs>
2: Like a like a video of a chimpanzee and a frog.
1: <laughs> exactly. Hey, come sit down and watch this. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, at this point, Thurber becomes
1: this messenger
2: out of this maze, out of this out of the darkness. It's into the maze right into the center of darkness he gets a little glimpse and then he becomes the messenger and comes out of that darkness holy moly you don't want to go there in right. your mind you know you don't want yeah. to go where and go i've got this little inkling i want to see a little bit and i just see far far too much
1: yep yeah. um, and the next morning comes and thurber Has a realization. He's got something in his jacket.
3: Yeah, it's the it's the photograph that he was going to look at. You know, when when uh, Pikmin freaked out and he didn't realize it, but he grabbed it and he put it in his pocket.
1: Right during when he was reacting to the gunshots, he kind of absentmindedly just crumpled it up and took it. And uh, he says that's where the real scare came, and and it's because of that that he dropped Pikmin because of what he saw when he looked at the photograph.
0: Don't ask me to explain or even conjecture about what I burned. Don't ask me, either, what lay behind that mole-like scrambling Pickman was so keen to pass off as rats. There are secrets, you know, which might have come down from old Salem times, and Cotton Mather tells even stranger things. You know how damned lifelike Pickman's paintings were. How we all wondered where he got those faces. Well, that paper wasn't a photograph of any background after all what it showed was simply the monstrous being he was painting on that awful canvas it was the model he was using and its background was merely the wall of the cellar studio in minute detail but by God Elliot it was a photograph from life
3: and that is the end of the story.
1: What do you guys think? What do you think about the story?
3: Well it's one of my, it's one of my favorites. Reading this I forgot how it's it's actually very similar in a way to uh, music of Eric Zahn. But they talk about yes. how his music is different than than everybody else's music, that there's something to it.
1: It's also got that slum setting.
3: Right, yeah, that's also kind of this tucked away place where this artist is you know, honing his craft in, in seclusion and away from everybody else. And, and I think Music of Eric Zahn was a little bit just better. Like, it was a little better written and really captured that, that mood and that otherworldliness and how there was something special about it. But this story, I I mean, there are there's some really amazing passages in it and some really cool stuff, but as a whole, I feel like it's just kind of a, a different version of the music of Eric Zahn.
1: I think probably Eric Zahn is a better literary piece, but this yeah. is far more accessible. You know, when I when I uh, want to recommend Lovecraft to somebody, this is a great story for them to read to get into I, it. You know what, I agree
3: with you. I do.
2: You know, I, I re I reread this, you know, a couple actually about two weeks ago and then I thought I'd even re-familiarize myself today. And I, I really still find this to be one of my favorites. And it, quite obviously I know I, I took enough time you know, we took enough time to actually, you know, make a film about it. And the meat of this, the labyrinth of the human mind going to the center of the darkness and then coming out changed. You know, is changed, you know, after he goes down there. The the evolution of of the human species and great stuff. And like you said, one of my top favorite lovecrafts yeah
1: it it's really accessible it really makes sense it's got a it's got the italicized ending it's got some monsters in it it's very interesting it's also got a comment about you know Lovecrafts view of art. It's got all of those things, and yeah. um, it's it's very compelling. It's fun, and it's it's just a quick read. Good stuff.
3: Uh, th- there was one little interesting side note, and then I don't I don't know if I'm. This is a spoiler alert. Uh, Pikmin shows up again in another of Lovecraft's stories.
1: Oh, that's right, he does.
3: And he's a ghoul, I believe, right? Yeah, he he, he uh, goes through the transformation, and he himself becomes a ghoul, and we find that out in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is going to be pretty soon. We're we're coming very close to that.
1: Um, there have been lots of other adaptations I think there's a Night Gallery episode right Chris you, right, you yeah. watched it didn't you
3: It's pretty it's it's not bad the first part of it Berber is is a woman so it kind of mm-hmm. gives a little bit of an interesting dynamic and basically Pikmin's teaching like kind of these rich housewives how to paint and she sees one of his you know paintings and it's pretty interesting in the be- but the end of it there's a dude in a really crappy rubber costume that and they fight and- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, that's, it's, it's that's not, not an ability of it all, isn't
1: it? <laughs> yeah, that's delicious. Exactly. And I know that there are lots of artists who actually have taken on these different settings and... and uh, actually oh, yeah, trying to...
3: versions of these paintings that are described in in the story
1: yeah and I you know if uh, if if listeners know about any of those or they have any art or anything like that that they could send to us please send it because I don't know where to find a lot of that stuff but I know that plenty of, of illustrators and artists have done that stuff
2: that is something that has been going on collaboratively uh, with my wife who was actually in on doing all of the the, the ghoulish special effects and Pikmin's song where we were working on a richard upton pickman kind of gallery and some of these paintings eventually are going to be uh, available for sale and stuff but i'd be happy to send you some some of the work that's been done because i think yeah please do yeah. i've seen
1: some of those they're really good we'll send us some uh, some stills of the paintings so we can put them up in the in the notes oh absolutely
3: yeah quickly i just wanted to, to get some minor facts out about this story it was written in september of 1926 and published in Weird Tales in October of that same year. So it got a pretty quick turnaround. And oh, good. Pickman's, Mo- Pickman's Model is one of Lovecraft's uh, few stories that was actually anthologized while he was alive. It was in this book mm. called By Daylight Only that came out in 1929. It was reprinted in Not at Night, Omnibus, which came out in uh, 31, I think, 31 or 32. Okay. So yeah, this story actually was published in a book while Lovecraft okay. was still alive. Great.
1: Pikmin shows up in uh, in Stephen King's It. He's a minor character in a scene in there.
3: Oh, I didn't yeah. realize that.
1: Yeah, there's a. They flash back to a bar fight that happened in the 20s, and Pikmin's at the bar for some reason. <laughs> you know, it's just Stephen King's nod to uh, Lovecraft.
3: One last thing before we wrap up the show here, a lot of people have been asking us if we're going to ever do full story readings of that's right. You know, Lovecraft's work instead of just excerpts.
1: And uh, we are going to do that. We're um, we're going to start w- at the end rather than the beginning as we have been doing on the podcast we're going to we're going to do an audio recording of Lovecraft's last story The Haunter of the Dark
3: and uh, and instead of going about this uh, the normal of publishing it and putting it on a, a, a DVD or a CD we're going to uh, release it after a ransom has been paid that's right
1: <laughs> so basically, it'll be uh, a full recording of the story. Andrew Lehman's going to be doing it. It'll have the full treatment with effects and music. And when, as soon as we raise one thousand dollars, we're going to release it to the public for anybody yep. who owns. So if be... you make a donation in any denomination, we'll take it. And once yes. we get, we'll keep updating folks on the site. And once we get up to a grand, you got the Haunter of the Dark in your hot little hand.
3: So, um, so that's we're we're going to try this out. Hopefully, this is going to be uh, easier and more accessible than you know our. Our CDs did very well, but we only made a certain amount of them, so hopefully this yeah. is something that people are, are really clamoring for. Again, it's Andrew Lehman's going to be doing the reading, and he is phenomenal. And,
1: uh, folks, if you do make a, a a donation and you haven't donated before, we'll be happy to send you a link to our first soundtrack CD as a little bonus. So, you know, you can get some music, and then you can get the reading eventually. I want to thank uh, Josh for being a guest today. We We had a really good time talking to you. And uh, I thought you had some really good insights into the story.
3: Yeah, thanks, man. It was really good having you on the show.
1: I'm going to go back to
2: my ghoul mattresses over here next to this old municipal building and roll around for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is great, man. uh, I'll do a quick plug. You can see the trailer for Pikmin's song. It will be released on DVD. Um, I was hoping to do it in October.
1: Excellent. Well, uh, s- send us the link to the trailer and we'll put it up. I want to thank uh, Troy Sterling-Neese for providing such excellent music for us today. Thanks, Troy. Always always a pleasure to have you on.
3: Uh, I also want to thank our awesome guest reader, uh, talented film director and producer, Chris Weitz. Thank you for taking the time out and reading for us.
1: Chris is working on, uh, he's finishing up his new film, The Gardener. Yep. Um, and they were editing it this weekend, so we appreciate Chris taking the time out from gardener to help us with that, and everybody should go see that when it comes out next year.
3: Uh, with that, I am Chris Lackey.
1: I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And uh,
3: Josh Bentley. And this has been the <laughs> HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at HPPodcraft.com
0: HPPodcraft.com